0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Jess Medson, Head of Research and Development at FC Copenhagen. Jess, a big warm welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Jess, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, we begin by asking, could you please take us through your earliest football memory?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, that is... uh. That is being a, a small child. I was have been around five years old. And uh, for the people who remember, that's the year in 92 where Denmark became European champions. And uh, we beat uh, the Germans 2-0 in an amazing match in Sweden. And uh, the story about that is, of course, that Denmark was not even qualified for the championships. But due to the war in Yugoslavia, we still came there. We didn't bring Michael Laudrup, our best player. Uh, And the whole team was like famous for going to McDonald's uh, during the startups uh, of the the championship. And no one thought that we could ever win. But what I remember is uh, my father uh, going crazy in the living room. And uh, I didn't understand that it was football. I didn't understand what was going on. But I remember that feeling of just complete... (laughs) happiness and euphoria because it's Denmark winning the European championships. Uh, Maybe it's never going to happen again. Uh, So that was, of course,
0: a big thing. Yes, Amazing to hear how kind of a passion like that unfolds from such an early age. But obviously, we're here to talk to you today about how two of your passions coincided, both football and Euroscience. One very intrigued to learn about, I'm sure many listening will be, is to what got you interested in the field of neuroscience in the first place?
1: Well, so that's a, that's a, that's a long, uh, long answer. And, uh, <laughs> uh but so, uh, I actually studied philosophy, uh, in my bachelor's degree. And, uh, the reason for that was that, uh, I have always been interested in perception and I've always been interested in how reality is shaped and how reality is uh, experienced to me consciousness as a concept and a phenomenon is the biggest mystery in the world. Uh, Why do humans have consciousness? Why do we experience the world? Uh, What is the reason for that? Um, And um, I started with those types of questions, which are philosophical in nature, and I slowly uh, became more interested in more the how is consciousness created? Then why is consciousness created? And so I actually started working at a lab, a neuroscience lab in Denmark, while I was doing my philosophy studies, because I just realized, okay, maybe I I picked the wrong thing, I want to study biology instead. And what happened was that I became a part of this institution. um, uh, And and there was a mentor, a professor called Bende Pagenberg, who basically just showed a lot of believe in me and, and taught me all of this, these things about the laboratory, gave me projects to look at the brain, uh, work with human brains, uh, study Alzheimer's. And slowly I became way better and started to understand the concepts behind neuroscience. And then of course, in my master, I was I studied cognition and I spent most of my time trying to understand what what is a brain scan, um, So if you talk about FMI studies, for example, uh, you know, many people look at FMI studies and think, okay, that's the active brain, right? And there's a lot of thoughts about there's a lot of misconceptions about the idea of a brain scan. Um, There was a study once where they they, they had two identical papers uh, about politics. One had an image of a brain scan, one didn't. And of course, the one with the brain scan on it, people uh, believed more of what was being said. They remembered more of the information and they thought that the article was more exciting. So the whole concept of you know, the brain scan and neuroscience itself is, is, is a scientific discipline that is sometimes being overestimated by people outside of the field. So my master thesis was basically about looking at brain scans and saying, what can we actually conclude from the types of brain scans we're doing and what can we conclude? Um, That ended up being my ticket to the States. So I got a scholarship to the University of Arizona, uh, where I studied medical pharmacology um, and pain and dopamine systems for two years. And then I came back to Denmark, where I was starting actually a project on psilocybin mushrooms, which is like magic mushrooms uh, and depression. So uh, the clinical aspects of that. But then Corona happens and I started to become really bored uh, because I couldn't test the patients. I couldn't do anything. I was just looking at data, old data and like I was bored. Um, and then I started to look into football. Uh, so what does the football community actually know about neuroscience uh, and what does neuroscience know about football. And I realized that this field was, was kind quite small. And there wasn't a lot of research in it, which kind of baffled me because football is the biggest sports sport in the world. And there's a lot of money uh, in football that could go into research and understanding the cognitive neuroscience of playing football. Could be extremely beneficial for clubs that compete on small percentages in order to win matches. Um, so I started doing looking into all of this. What was the research about? What can we say? A lot of the research is is, is poorly designed. A lot of the research had the research hasn't really found like a uh, a, a common uh, vocabulary so for example if you look into just game intelligence like there's so many different definitions of it and discussions about it um so and also technologies you know all of these companies that i will sell you some type of software that will make you 20 percent more precise in your passes and all of this um all of this made me think okay wait a minute does my favorite club in the world fc copenhagen do they know about this um like what not to do and what maybe you should do. Because I believe that if you open any neuroscience book and read it from the beginning to the end, you'll learn about learning, you'll learn about vision, you'll learn about hearing, action, uh, executive functions, which are like very, I'm not going to say basic, but they're very fundamental facts that we know about the brain. Uh, And they can just be read in any book you can get at the library and just understanding those concepts are going to help you a lot when you're trying to teach youngsters concepts and ideas. Um, And I wanted FC Copenhagen to know these ideas and not maybe spend large sums on technology and uh, software that cannot do what they're saying they can do. So that ended up in a partnership. And after some while they they offered me the the job as head of research and development in the club. And so what I'm doing now is of course, using my neuroscience to have a research line. Uh, So we have different areas of research focus. And one of them is cognitive neuroscience where where I'm basically in charge of the project and investigating uh, cognitive neuroscience uh, and football. Uh, but I also do other things at the club because I'm, I'm I, I, I'm involved in many projects and many different things because um, I think football is becoming more and more like an academic enterprise because you have like the, the, the physical trainers need to know all these things about data and stats and physical loads. The analyst needs to know a lot about data, about Correct way of sampling and looking at different methods and softwares Uh, coaches need to read papers on coaching and uh, intelligence and social behavior Uh, and in that way like the whole area has just become like very academic and in there i I feel like i have a lot to offer because i understand uh, science from from the inside I know I can read a paper. I understand papers. I know what the professors are doing, what they're not doing, uh, how to read stats, all these things. So I'm more, today I'm, of course, looking into the cognitive neuroscience, but I also am involved in many other projects that are just like developing uh, science and science understanding
0: within the club. Oh, fascinating, Jess. And what I'm writing down here now is like, from what I hear you speak of, you know, Obviously, right now, we're in the age of information, but it's one's ability to kind of disseminate and provide um, clerical insights will be kind of the competitive advantage going forward in terms of interpreting that info and passing it on to such coaching staff and players alike. Aside from that, you know, what I'm very intrigued to learn a little bit more about from your own studies was, you know, from studying neuroscience, what was the big difference that you learned about that debate between intelligence versus consciousness?
1: uh intelligence versus consciousness well i i think well, well I, for me they are completely different uh, concepts so consciousness is is basically so so it depends on what you ask about consciousness but if we ask how does consciousness arise then it's basically a purely biological chemical electrical <laughs> discussion like what is it that some, con- some phenomenons become conscious in your mind and some don't, right? And some people believe they have the answer and some don't. And um, uh, within that area, the biggest discussion is, uh, is consciousness and attention, the same thing. And there are people in, in both uh, areas that, that, that believe one thing or the other. And one been, I once went to a conference where there was almost a fight on stage <laughs> because of these things, right? Uh, it means so much to some people, but if you think about it, you're you're consciously perceiving the things you attend to. But are there things that you don't attend to that you're still consciously perceiving, right? So some would say yes, because there's like a flow of perception and then there's attention. Where others would say no, no, there's attention and then there's partial attention to other objects. Uh, and the reason why it matters is because If you want to find the neural mechanisms and neural correlates of consciousness, then if it's attention, then we're pretty close to saying, okay, then we know what it is. But if it's consciousness, then it's a bit more uh, complex. Um, But in terms of intelligence, which I think is more a concept that humans have created, it's like a constructed phenomenon that's not necessarily has anything to do with neuroscience. It's a constructed phenomenon that we use to, to label people's uh, behavior and capabilities. And the IQ test is great, uh, or the IQ tests, because there's many, many different types of IQ tests, but they're great at labeling and understanding and predicting people's behavior. But I'm, but I'm not, I'm not that interested in, in, in intelligence, uh, per se, uh, as a phenomenon, because I think it's, it's, it's linked to the things you're interested in. Um, so you can have musical intelligence or logic logical intelligence or social intelligence. And I guess we all know people who have many friends and are extremely good at understanding social cues, but extremely bad at arithmetics right? But we won't call them stupid just because they have a bad IQ score. And we also people know people in the other way around who have great ideas and can solve complex mathematics, but cannot have a normal conversation. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, there are many different ways to understand this. But if we think about in terms of football, my one of my biggest kind of visions in this is that from hearing and seeing uh, talks and lectures and debates in football where many people are debating game intelligence i i'm not i don't really care for that concept because I, I i think that the the way to understand game intelligence comes from the team's style of play and thereby the coach's assessment of the individual decisions made in the match and therefore it's more of a subjective um a subjective undertaking whether a player is game intelligent or not it depends on who is looking at them and why they're looking at them and there's also tons of biases in this like we always say that the 10 and the six is game intelligent right we never say about the right back that is game intelligent but he might actually do have take very many good decisions during a match but so what we have been trying to do and what we're still trying to do is instead of saying what is game intelligence We are trying to say, what are the prerequisites for making decisions? And if we can figure out what goes into making decisions, then we can look at those cognitive functions and thereby uh, try to train these functions so that the players are well well equipped to make decisions. But evaluating the decision is the the coach's job, if you ask me, and not the neuroscientist's. job
0: that's fantastic and it's enlightening because you look at that term game intelligence and it's such a broad yet such a loose term there has to be yeah there has to be a lot more kind of apt phrases for beginning to even understanding the potential of an athlete's quality with respect to the game and as you spoke about you can't begin to contextually debate the ability, or the ability in decision-making, let's say, of a right-back compared to a 6 or a 10. So that's very important too. But if we're to look at perhaps of all these prere- prerequisites that go into decision-making of a football player, and let's say we put them under the broader term in terms of cognitive potential. If, yeah,
1: that's a good word. That's actually yeah. something we, we say. We, we call it also cognitive potential so that we don't um, take any players out of the... Uh, yeah when, when we look at players that we don't say, he's not good, but more, what is the potential? Yeah, I like
0: that. I think it's a good way That's of frame. no I think it's a great way of framing things, but maybe then you could elaborate, yes, in your own assessments, or your own body of work in terms of if an athlete is going to fulfill their cognitive potential why might some of those areas be?:
1: Well, so now you're asking about Pandora's box because that's what we've been working on for a while, and I, I think I need some to explain some background story to this. So I came from uh, so neuroscience in itself is not the oldest, uh, the oldest uh, scientific discipline at all. but so for example, Alzheimer's is a a phenomenon that's been uh, described for, I think it's 130 years since it was first described really and, and classified. And if you go into that type of research, you are not creating the models or the theories behind Alzheimer's. You are looking at protein differences in specific types of disease populations, and you're adding small, small bits of information to that complete endeavor it is to try to understand alzheimer's so when you go into a field of neuroscience research it could be pain which i later also looked at or iq which i also looked at there you ask okay what's the main hypothesis what's the model right and if you have like a pain there's a model for what is pain right you you have uh, you have a, a sensory input to the foot and you you have uh, signals going all the way up the spine and through the paradoxical gray and experience and, and stuff like this, right? So you have a model for what happens. And from that, you can start to make hypotheses. If that happens, then you will have less pain or if we do that and stuff like that, right? That's how science works. But so when I started in football, I kind of asked, so what's the model? Like, what's the theory? And I'm not going to say that the people who worked on this already didn't have their own model, but I don't think that anyone had created a substantial uh, model for cognition in elite football that I could take and use. So um, I basically created a cognitive model for football players, which is a classical cognitive model. It has 14 stages of processing, that it goes through from a to b to c and all the way and it explains what happens in every situation uh, that the player is in during a match so this cognitive process might happen a million times during a match and the reason why we created this model which we are publishing actually in, uh, in january together with a danish professor called thomas harbikost who's a professor in cognitive neuropsychology so uh, the reason why we created it to begin with was that I realized that, and I, many people must know this, that like, if you go to a, a coach who's who's uh, maybe coaching U13 or U19 or first team, and you tell him uh, working memory is important for football players, right? Or if you say motorical inhibition is important, they'll say, great, but how? Like, <laughs> why do I, how do I do that? And that was the main reason to create the model because if you have the model, then you can kind of show them this and say, okay, this is what happens. And then you can even you can look at a player, you can you can go and look at video and say, okay, now he has his attention to something. Two two, now he's scanning towards something. Three, now he's making the decisions, four, now he's making the inhibition, six, now he's making the action, you know. So you can. It's way easier to analyze the behavior of players when you have a model. And important to say it's a model and therefore it's a representation of reality. It's not a one-to-one description of reality because, of course, the brain is a lot more complex than I suggest in the model, but it allows us to work with it. And we couldn't do that before because when I was saying these things, perception, retention, working memory, the coaches would forget it. They, 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 It didn't make sense to them because they didn't have a framework for working with it. So that was the first thing we did and really spent a lot of time educating the coaches uh, about these concepts, like really explaining what is working memory, when you're playing on the pitch, when do the player use it, uh, why is it important, all these things like That's been a big thing, like educating the coaches on cognitive neuroscience, right? So it took a while. Um, So, uh, yeah, that was the first first thing we did. Uh, And from there on, we we, kind of said, okay, now we have a model, right? So, and we want to use these these insights to doing three things. We want to use it to train our players. We want to use it to test our players. So kind of a screening tool. And three, we're going to use it for scouting. And so I'm not gonna talk about the scouting because that's kind of our uh, uh, secrets or just things we keep in the club. But I can talk about the other things if you want to hear how, how we did that. So what we did was to to, to to look at the literature and then look at the different research that has been done and see which cognitive functions have been shown to be correlated or predictive of future success in football. There's been around five to six studies looking at quite big populations of young players that have done done the Vienna test battery, which is a classical cognitive test. And then they've seen that motorical inhibition, cognitive flexibility um, uh, and working memory very often correlate with future success of football players. So therefore we could make the inference that, okay, maybe we should try to create exercises that that train the players in this, right? And see if it actually makes them better. So we took the classical tactical periodization and we just added the cognitive aspect to it because we already have the tactical, we already have the physical. Now let's add the cognitive. And to begin with, we basically just took the first 10 minutes of every training. And then we said, the first 10 minutes of every training from U13 to U19, you are training one of five cognitive functions. That's uh, scanning, it's inhibition, it's working memory, it's flexibility and it's prediction, but in the beginning, we made the huge mistake, or I made the huge mistake, of creating exercises that would uh, manipulate the players to train these functions. And we realized really fastly you cannot do that. It's too superficial, it's too, it just doesn't work because the players will find other ways to solve the exercises than the way you want it. Uh, and then FC Copenhagen specificity is extremely important. Like right? we want to train the way we play. So what we did after half a year was saying, okay, we're starting to get a grasp on the functions and how to coach and instruct them, but we're not using these exercises. They're bad. They're made by neuroscientists. They're not made by coaches. Right. <laughs> so what we did was to say, okay, now you can basically do any exercise you want to do. Just make it somewhat competitive and make them play five versus five horse or something like that, right? But what we do is that in those 10 minutes, we almost only talk into these functions, right? So we try to uh, make the, the players aware of, uh, for example, their scanning. And when we see bad scanning behavior, we'll stop the game, talk with them about it. Why didn't you scan? That's the reason why you lost the ball or something like that. Uh, so it becomes a real game situation, an understandable exercise, but we're making them aware of these concepts. So, for example, working memory for me is something that I think is somewhat um, over complicated very often. So for me, working memory is seeing something, getting an information and using that information to make an action. It's that simple. If you didn't have work in memory, you would only act on the things you're seeing directly, right? So it's basically just looking, receiving the ball, and playing in that area. That would train your scanning and your working memory to combine in order to make decisions. Look at Frankie de Jong. He'll, he'll do it all the time. He's amazing at remembering and then playing the ball. So there we'll make exercises where we, where we kind of make the players have different zones and you have a middle zone where you have a one touch and you have to play the ball forward. That will make the player, um, uh, you will, then he will have to do the scan and he will have to act on it. So he trains those connections. Um, and I don't believe that players should play football and then we tell them five digits and then they should tell me in a minute because that might be work in memory. But that's not the working memory you use when you're playing a match. The working memory you're using when you're playing a match is the one that can help you remember things you saw one second ago and act upon it. Um, so that's that's been a a, a the the first big thing that we did in terms of practice. And this season we've actually gone away from this because now we realize now the coaches know it completely, and we've integrated it into the full training so that we'll still make the periodization but we'll say to the coaches you can do it in any exercise you want but we want you to coach on these things when it makes sense and it's also now part of the players uh, developmental plans and, and all of this so it becomes it's become integrated now it's not just like a weird warm up now it's actually part of the whole training and we talk into this and, and speak with the players about it so that's the training aspects, uh, which has been a headache. <laughs> but I think we are very, we are a completely different place than we were just two years ago.
0: Uh, yeah. So fascinating! So so fast.
1: Okay, so another thing, Conor, that is really important here is that the lectures that we gave the coaches, we actually also uh, gave the players. Mm. So we also told the players, "Why are you doing?" I think that's important as well. So we showed them these statistics and we showed them these videos of Messi and Frankie de Jong and all of these fantastic players and showing them how they were using these capacities.
0: Um, Yeah. It's so, so fascinating because when you speak of models, as you said, it's a framework for viewing the world. And this cognitive model, no less, it's like something which has been seems as though it's been a slow burner inside the club. But in terms of framing the conversations, having those conversations with players and coaches alike, you've achieved buy-in over time. Yeah. And obviously with all models, you have to know kind of the game you're embedded in, the reality in which you're embedded in. And obviously, FC Copenhagen's a great example of getting young talent and them over their own life cycle with the view to getting into the first team or with the view to settling on to the top five leagues in Europe. But yeah. for teams that are higher up in the pyramid, let's say, of top-flight of top flight European football that are consistently competing for league titles in the big five leagues, that are reaching the final eight, final four, of the Champions League. I mean, with those teams, with no shortage of abundance, yes. how do you foresee, perhaps, over the next five, ten years, they could begin implementing cognitive models of their own? Because, necessarily, they're not so heavily reliant, are they, on youth development? They don't have to play the long-term game.
1: I mean, one day they, they can read my, my article in January. <laughs> they can start there. Uh, I'm not sure who's gonna read that because, of course, it's a science paper. Uh, but maybe I'll I'll spend some time, of course, elaborating when it's published. But for me, the really, really like if you were ask me to like take all of these things we've done and just give you one a uh, one liner, and that is that in our cognitive model, right? we, we describe what happens from attention to action, right? And what we want to is that the player goes through almost all of the stages of cognitive processing before they receive the ball. So that when they receive, they're at action, ready to play, right? What happens when you see teams that are playing slow is that when the players receive the ball, that's when they start to scan. That's when they start to analyze. That's when they start to make decisions. That's going to cost you one to two seconds. So we want the players to scan, analyze, make the decision, receive the ball and play first time. And that is an analysis you can do on any player and look at how many times is he actually prepared for the situation he's in. And the best players in the world are always prepared for the situations because it will make them play a lot faster, and there are of course different ways to do this by having strict tactical ideas and uh, directions from the coach because that will make you play faster. But I think that is one area where you can even if you're one of the biggest clubs in the world, you can analyze your players and say who is too slow in this. How can we make him take his? I call it. I call it post receiving the ball and pre. Um, uh, pre-receiving the ball, post-receiving the ball. And the point is that you should have a, as many cognitive processes as possible in the pre-cognitive processes before receiving the ball. And we'll, you'll see great players also sometimes not doing this, but that will make you play one second faster at least. But the other thing that we've done is the testing. So uh, there's a, a, a VR company called Be Your Best who created this um, VR tool for scanning and training scanning behavior. And uh, I think they're quite successful in proving that they, they actually increased their scanning rate if they trained with this. But what we said was that what if we took this and in embedded the Vienna test battery, the cognitive tests in the VR training tool? So the last year, me and Be Your Best has been working a lot to create a small football game where while you're playing, we are measuring your scanning rate, we're measuring your scan timing, all these scan aspects, but we're also giving you small exercises in the game that you're not completely aware of. So it still feels like a game, but they'll test your inhibition. They'll test your, how fast you are at inhibiting They'll test your pattern recognition skills. They'll test your cognitive flexibility skills and also your attentional skills. And that means that instead of giving a player like a computer software where they have to sit and do these cognitive tests on the computer, which is a bit far away from the game, we actually put them inside of the football game and see how is their behavior in that. right. And we just stopped Uh, we just uh, tested the whole academy and uh, the the results are of course it's i'm the one who was in charge of inventing it and of course i'm going to speak positively about it but i i think that the results we have right now are incredible because we can really see big differences in age groups we can see big differences in in positions like where do they play on the pitch And we can also see really, really interesting um, correlations between the player's actual uh, level and their their aggregated score. So it is our better performing players on the pitch that are also performing well on the VR uh, test or performance assessment as we call it. Um, So, I think that's uh, that's incredible and I'm just <laughs> I can't wait for the next two years to go so that I can develop this even more and and get to know the data even more and, and yeah uh, do it even more and I think we we've already launched it uh, be your best has already launched it and are actually selling the product as far as I know so important to say I have no uh, financial gains uh, or any <laughs> Partnerships would be your best. So I'm not gaining any money from this. Uh, from if they sell anything, but but uh, of course it's been an extremely important partnership for us because they had the software programmers and we had our expertise in football, and we're extremely happy about it because now we can look at players like we can take a player in who's who has difficulties and we can start to understand a lot better. Like okay, is it his scanning rate? No, it's not okay, this player has really bad inhibition. Okay, so let's go look at the matches and see maybe that's why he's making weird decisions during the matches because he has problems inhibiting. Or this player has a hard time changing behavior. Let's see in the the test. Does he also have problems in that? And alone, just watching a player do the test is so full of qualitative uh, insights because... If I, if, if I were to ask you, Connor, like, come here to Copenhagen, do the test, right? And I'm sitting there and my assistant Jesper is sitting there and we're looking at you, right? That situation is kind of, okay, uh, I am I have to perform now, right? And do you understand the things I'm saying? How fast do you understand the small assignments and tasks Um like, are you motivated when you go in? Uh, is that a general problem for you that you're not that motivated when you're asked to perform? Um, so we've ended up with having the data itself, which is an interesting, but also quite big descriptions, uh, qualitative descriptions about the players. Like how do they react to this situation? But we do not call it a test to the players. That's important. Uh, we just ask them to play the game and do their best
0: absolutely fascinating and you know i'm here looking at it and hearing it from a player's lens and for me like i've light bulbs going off galore but what i'm beginning to think about and um, have you guys begun hypothesizing yes i mean we're speaking about a player's decision making ability really here but what about a coach's decision making ability have you begun to research or well obviously we have but have you begun to work more deeply into that and begin to think as to how we can impact coaches' behavior and decision making, and not only match day, but also on the whole training week and whatnot.
1: I don't think they they want me to look at that. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but no, it's it's an amazing, uh, it's it's an amazing idea. And no, we we, we haven't. Um, We've more looked into like uh, communication uh, for the coaches and looking at that quite a lot at the moment. Uh, like effective communication, precise communication and stuff like that but the cognitive aspects of the coaches uh, decision making ability, um, we're not there yet and also we don't have enough coaches to really make valid conclusions on this right um, so what we're doing is is we're going to in the autumn just, uh, I have now more of a technical assistant who's we will do all of these testing We will of course test all of the academy but we will also test uh a lot of what you call sub elite players so we're just trying to gain as much data as possible uh, and see see what will happen from that right and try to understand this and for me the data output that we get is basically a a cognitive profile of each player and i view it as the cognitive prerequisites for each player in order to make decisions. (laughs) Uh, And it's not his, so it's not his it's not his decision-making ability, but it's the cognitive processing uh, that he has to help him with making these decisions. And remember, there's also physical, there's technical, there is mental aspects that goes into this that are extremely important. And I'm not, I'm not gonna say it's not important, but this is a model about cognition. It's not a model about the mental aspects, but of course, mental aspects influence this quite a lot. Um, so this is this is basically uh, the, the BibCat it's called, um, um, cognitive assessment tool, um, and we are using it, and we are also using it uh, every day. So we have a, a presentation every uh four months with the results to the coaches and we'll basically go into detail with each player and say what can we say from these results uh sometimes it's there's not much to say and sometimes it's really really interesting because we can explain some of their behavior and uh, sometimes it's it's it really really you know points out obvious um, challenges that the player has but we will never use this as a screening tool. We will always use this as a tool for developing players because we believe in the positive. Uh, we believe in our talents. We believe in our youngsters, and we want them to succeed. And if this can help them succeed, we'll, we'll spend resources on
0: it. And obviously, I mean, from the sounds of things throughout this podcast, I mean, it's very value-driven work that you guys are doing at FC Copenhagen, I certainly believe it's pioneering. Um, I don't believe it's going to be the last that we hear of it either. And I think a lot of clubs worldwide are going to take a lot of inspiration, Jess, from your research, work with the club. So my question is for you, I suppose, where do you see this field and this intersection of neuroscience and football headed? And do you believe this is just a very scratch of the surface?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, as I said b- before, right? If you study Alzheimer's, you're 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 standing on 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 the shoulders of, of giants when you start, and uh, here, of course, there's been there are amazing researchers in this field. Uh, Mark Williams, uh, um, for one. Uh, what's he called? Demart, um, Guy Jordit, all of these people. But I think what we are trying to do, which I don't believe anyone has really done yet, is to try to uh, summarize all of this in creating a unified idea about it. Um, And also most models about this is about sports in general, but ours is a model about football in general. Um, And one thing that is going to completely revolutionize this is the fact that Let's say that you were interested in musicians, then fine, put them in a brain scanner and make them play the piano. You'll see exactly what happens when they play the piano. (laughs) There's no difference. You cannot strap a 40 ton uh, brain scanner on Ronaldo and ask him to juggle the ball because it's (laughs) physically impossible. So the, the, as all science, this is also based on technology and methodology, and I, and I know that uh, Neuro11 is someone who is trying to, and they've worked in Liverpool, I know they're trying to, of course, use some type of EEG, as far as I know, uh, to understand like brain activity during free kicks. Um, and those types of insights are gonna, when when we are starting to to get those first papers out, right? Letter player, so, so uh, Axum, uh, Karl Mayus Axum, right, he did an eye tracking uh, study on players, right, which was amazing. Like we could see there was almost no fixations on teammates or opponents. It was all on, on the balls, right? And then realizing, okay, so your scanning uh, exercise where you have to say one finger or two finger is the worst ever because players don't perceive the world that way when they play. The same, I think, is going to happen when we start to realize what actually goes into making a pass or uh, shooting the ball or, like, what happens in cognitively during a match because then we can start to say, how do we uh, increase performance in that? And another thing that's that's that, that now that I'm inspired, I want to say that is that if you remember that what I wanted to understand as a youngster was basically what is consciousness, right? And through all of these many years of studying all these things, I'm kind of like still doing the same thing, but uh, using a extremely specific um, act like playing football has shown to me that it's actually a maybe a better way to try to understand perception and consciousness in general because we have a defined room and space and limits for what is the player supposed to do, right? And it's easier to, to define what is a decision. And and maybe through sports, we'll even, this is thinking big, right? But maybe we'll even help understanding these questions because sports is so multi-model, right? Uh, that everything goes into playing a match. Uh, and if we start to do these scans and become better at that in the future, maybe we can open up New areas of i
0: investigation. Totally, um, so undoubtedly. So I had a conversation with a great friend recently about this too and you know, for context from here, we're speaking about reality. We're speaking about perception and our own experience of the world within it. But we're speaking about the limits to a visualization on the say se- yeah. on the you know, on the other end of the coin and you know, he referenced both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arsene Wenger. Mm-hmm. two shining yeah. examples in terms of the recent Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix and Wenger in his book where they both spoke about how they achieved or they had success in their life beyond their wildest dreams. They lived a life beyond yeah, their yeah. wildest dreams. So that was my next question for yourself, Jess, in terms of the work in which you're doing today. Could you have foreseen five, ten years ago the impact that you would have been making in this field?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I'm actually making any impact yet. Um, but um, I feel like that um, I've always been very interested in many subjects, topics, um, and I've always been kind of a, uh, a person who's very easily bored. Uh, so as soon as I understood something, I wanted to just understand the next thing. right? <laughs> And um, that wasn't so good in a research lab because you have to study the same thing for many years. But this field now that I'm in has just been completely changing for me as a person. Because in football, so many things happen. It's such a dynamic environment that I feel like for me as a personal journey, this is like the perfect place to be. When as a kid, I dreamed about being Sinedine Zidane, right? i even asked the hairdresser to give me the same uh, uh, hair as siddant as right and my mother didn't didn't want her to cut me like that right uh, and uh, i love neuroscience and now that i've ended up combining these two and that it I, and i should i also think that it makes sense it's not just uh, me trying to find uh, connections i actually think the connections are there because it's it's basically brains it's a skeleton with a brain inside that's 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 playing football, right? So, of course, the brain is important in this. Uh, so, for me, it's extremely fulfilling. And I just, I, I think we're just starting. That's even, the, the motto of FC Copenhagen is we've only just begun, right? And that's how I also feel about this, this thing. Um, and in general, one of the things that we've been doing here in FC Copenhagen the last couple of years is to create extremely strong ties to the universities, like basically create partnerships with selected professors, um, and make sure that they are we take them to the match right, show them matches, we take them to the training ground, uh, we create strong bonds. We we have around eight students every season. That's six master students and two bachelor students that are help help create new knowledge Um, and that you know you know uh, intertwining the 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 academia with football and that they are getting research papers out of it and interesting environments to study and we are getting world class science projects out of it I think that is also something that I think more clubs could really really uh, take advantage of I mean when we write a project proposal on in psychology, th- there's so many applicants because everyone wants to work in, in, in for FC Copenhagen or uh, in Norwich or Arsenal or whatever club, right? So that's something that, that I think football clubs could gain a lot more from in general.
0: Fantastic yeah. model, we've only just begun, and <laughs> yeah, with that in mind. I mean, as is close in tradition on the podcast, I ask each guest for their one bit of advice. But, you know, one eye in the future, that motto on the back of our heads now, are at the very forefront. We've only just begun. For anyone wishing to get into the industry and have some long-term sustainable success, what would be your one bit of a key advice for them be?
1: Oh, I think that's a very... uh difficult question in general but if you ask me more like i think if you want to have a fulfilling and and a good life at least for me that's the case i think it's really important to be to strive to be good at something um and i think if you're really good at something you can add value with the things you know and that the things that you're expert on and you can thereby, thereby be a valuable member of a team. And you also have a goal to, to, to strive for. I'm not sure that it's true for everyone, but for me, that has always been one of the most important things is to strive to be good at the things that I'm doing. Um, and of course, I'm, I still have a thousand things to learn and many things I'm not good at, uh, but I always, really think it's important to do a, an effort uh, to be good, because there's so many clever, intelligent people in the world who's better than you. And it's, it's, it's not about performance, it's everything that's important, but it's still important to have goals and, and a vision about where you want to go. And the reason why I'm saying this is sometimes I, I, I experience that that many young people, they want to work in football but they don't necessarily know what it is in football they want to do. And my advice would be, well, choose one thing. (laughs) Be the best analyst anyone has ever seen and develop that. And then maybe one day you can also become the coach you dreamed of or whatever, or be the best uh, coach. I mean, pick something and become good at that. I think that's important. But that's easy for me to say because I've studied philosophy and pharmacology and now I'm in football, so I haven't gone a straight way anyhow, but effort is important.
0: Really fantastic. Jess? That was a long advice, (laughs) sorry. No, not at all. I think it's fitting of the podcast and of the route we've been on. We've discussed everything from psychedelic mushrooms to Zidane haircuts, so (laughs) it's only a fitting way to end, but... uh. Jess, I have to say, that's one of my favorite episodes to date. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, and thank you for inviting me.